The Jodcast, with another repeating radio burst, with George Bendo, Liz Guzman, Ian Harrison, Annie Kenson, Ian Morrison, Max Potter, Aretina Mogusanu, and Benjamin Shaw. The Jodcast, April 2016 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. In the studio with me today is Ben and Monique. Hello. Hi there. How are you feeling being back, George, after Jodcast Live? Oh, Jodcast Live was uh, quite a bit of work, but... Uh, yeah, you were on duty for the whole show, weren't you? You didn't even get a break, because you did the Ask an Astronomer as well, so you were sat there for the full two and a half well, hours. Well, I, I did, yeah, I did the slideshow through yeah. the entire thing, so I spent a lot of time... Well, you were, like, as busy as heck, too. Well, yeah, um, I was... Well, I think we were all busy. I mean, I was busy mainly setting up, but I did get I did get a brief rest during the show, um... I did not see that. <laughs> did you know? Well, it was during the Ask an Astronomer, I was off stage. Ah. Um, so I was stood at the back, sort of counting down the clock, making sure that we stayed on time. Um, but yeah, it was a great show. Um, if you haven't listened to it yet, please go and do so. It's a very long show, so you might need to set aside quite a bit of time to get through it, but I think it's definitely worth it. And we did have the biggest Ask an Astronomer panel we've ever had in a show. I think there was, how many of you? Eight? Nine. Oh, no, eight? Yeah, I think there was eight, because there was a... Yeah, there was eight. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was eight. Um, I think there were supposed to be nine. Uh, Tim, Tim was Tim supposed to be on. Um, supposed to be there, but yeah. ended up engaged with other things. But still, eight is is a huge panel. Um, but uh, and there's also some really our photographer Mike Peel took some really really cool photographs, and we've linked to those in the show notes. So you should definitely go and listen to that show because it's very good, and we enjoyed it muchly. Well, uh, in today's show. Uh, Max interviews Professor Mahalis Methiodakis in Morrison and Heratina Mogosanu take a look at what's happening in the April night sky, and we will all be discussing some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Harrison with this month's news. In the news this month, FRBs repeat, FRBs are localised, and Astro H is named, but then lost. Two stories this month have involved the mysterious but much-discussed fast radio bursts, short but loud radio signals which have been observed but not understood by astronomers since 2007. In the first paper, appearing online in the journal Nature on the 24th of February, a group of astronomers led by Evan Keane of Swinburne University of Technology in Australia claimed to have localised the origin of a fast radio burst in both sky position and distance. Since the bursts were first described eight years ago, FRBs have remained elusive enough to generate fierce debate. The differing times of arrival of the different radio frequencies within each burst suggested they had travelled through large amounts of material. But, was this diffuse material across intergalactic distances... Or was this incredibly dense material within our own galaxy? What mechanism was capable of producing such large amounts of energy? And why were the bursts seen so frequently in some surveys, but so seldom in others? In the work by Keane and collaborators, at least one of these questions appeared to have been answered, with the association of an FRB with a host galaxy some 6 billion light-years away something which had not been possible for any of the 17 previously known FRBs. After the burst was spotted by the Parkes Radio Telescope in New South Wales, 
only seconds after it had arrived at Earth. A wide variety of telescopes across the Southern Hemisphere sprung into action in an attempt to identify another object whose varying brightness coincided with that of the FLB. Because of the large field of view of Parkes, it is difficult to place where exactly on the sky a signal detected there has come from, meaning it is standard practice for astronomers to look for light from the event producing the FLB at other wavelengths as soon as possible, as other telescopes are capable of more precise determinations of sky localization. In the case of FLB 150418, this appears to have been successful, with data from the Australia Telescope Compact Array, or ATCA, finding a radio source in a similar direction, which flickered and faded in the six days following the FLB detection. The optical Subaru telescope in Hawaii was then able to identify a galaxy at this position and measure its distance via the redshifting of spectral lines. This apparent confirmation of FLBs as having an extragalactic origin caused much excitement, as it shows them to be some of the most energetic events known in the universe. Loud FLBs spaced across the universe could potentially be useful in cosmology for both measuring distances and, through the delay in the time of arrival of their different frequency components, measuring the number of free electrons between us and the FLB, identifying a source of matter outside galaxies otherwise invisible to us. However, the excitement was modulated by an almost immediate rebuttal of the finding. Peter Williams and Ido Berger, both of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, placed a short paper on the archive server for academic preprints two days after the discovery was announced, pointing out a potential mistake in the analysis. The two Harvard astronomers claimed that the problem lay in the statistics of the original paper and that there was a much higher probability that the flickering radio source seen by ATCA and identified as the afterglow of the FRB was in fact the more normal variability of an unassociated active galactic nucleus, the emission from the hot dense matter around a black hole at the centre of a different galaxy. Whilst active galactic nuclei, or AGN, are still extreme and interesting events, they are present and well studied throughout the universe, and do not need to have anything to do with FRBs. Reaction to this possibility was mixed and will take some time to resolve. The most promising approach appears to be in further observing the proposed host galaxy over an extended period of time. If any sign is seen of an uptick in the brightness of the radio galaxy, this would be an almost certain sign that the observation by ATCA was of a distant AGN, a supermassive black hole drawing in and superheating ancient gas and dust. Interesting, but not an FRB. Also in the news this month was another, more secure story about fast radio bursts. This one relates to the observation of several FRBs as repeating, meaning they cannot originate in single cataclysmic events such as the explosions of supermassive neutron stars, one of their previously proposed origins. By observing the aforementioned frequency-dependent delay, known as dispersion measure, or DM, of the arrival of FRBs at the Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico, the group, led by Lara Spittler of the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn, Germany, showed that the properties and sky positions of 10 bursts seen in the latter half of 2015 were consistent with those of both each other and another burst seen in 2012. 
these FRBs are all also consistent with being extragalactic, all having dispersion measure three times greater than the maximum expected for any source in the Milky Way. But none have the all-important associated host galaxy or redshift to confirm this with certainty. The mere fact that they appear to be repeating is still a huge finding for FRB astronomy, placing severe constraints on their origin and increasing the chances that they can be localised by other instruments who know when to expect their eruptions. However, there does appear to be a downside. If FRBs repeat and are not single events, it means they are unlikely to be so-called standard candles of set intrinsic brightness, which can be used for measuring cosmological distances. The best standard candle known to astronomers, the Type 1a supernovae, have proven invaluable in measuring the expansion of the universe and helping us learn about the nature of dark energy. We'll have to remain so for now. And finally, a new X-ray satellite hit severe problems this month when it lost contact with its controllers and apparently broke into several pieces in orbit. The satellite, belonging to the Japanese space agency JAXA, was previously known as Astro-H, but was recently named Hitomi, a tradition for Japanese missions whereby they are not named until safely in orbit. Hitomi was scheduled to be contacted on March the 26th for continued shakedown and calibration before beginning taking science data later this year. However, Hitomi failed to report, and observations appear to point to severe problems for the satellite. Tracking data showing orbital period against time for the 26th of March appears to show a sharp discontinuity, hinting at a violent event, as does the US Joint Space Operations Center's report of five smaller objects orbiting along with the satellite, and amateur astronomers' reports of the spacecraft tumbling apparently out of control. It remains to be seen whether the incident is the result of an asteroid or other space debris striking Hitomi, or whether a fault on the craft itself caused an explosion. Losing contact for a time with the satellite does not necessarily mean the mission cannot be highly successful, with both the XMM-Newton telescope and the New Horizons Pluto probe going dark for several days before coming back online. And, indeed, JAXA reported on the morning of the 29th of March that two fleeting communications had been made with Hitomi. The astronomy community will keep its fingers crossed, hoping that all is not lost and we do not have to wait for ESA's Athena X-ray telescope to be launched in 2030. Thanks for that, Ian. Now Max interviews Professor Mahalis Mathiodakis about solar magnetism and the Daniel K. Noway Solar Telescope. Hello, this is Max Potter for the Jodcast, and I'm joined by Mihalis Mathiudakis from Queen's University, Belfast. Hello. We just had your talk about solar magnetism and the DKIST telescope, which is going to be online in the near future. This is really exciting for me because it's a talk that I understand. It's about something related to my field, which is the solar corona. So why do we bother studying the sun? Everyone else is excited about things that are a lot further away than us around here. What got you interested in solar physics? Well, I think we have to remember that the sun is the most important astronomical object for uh, humankind. It drives space weather and has a direct impact on humanity. We have to also remember that the sun is a laboratory for astrophysics. It allows us to study the interaction between the plasma and the magnetic field over an enormous range of special scales, from a few kilometers 
up to hundreds or thousands of kilometers. So it's really a working example where the interaction between the plasma and the magnetic field can be studied in our backyard. Brilliant, yeah. So we know so much more about the sun than we do about objects that are further away, and that's presumably just because it's so much closer to us and we've spent a lot longer looking at it. Uh, absolutely, and the sun has helped us so much to understand our universe. Uh, not just our universe, but has helped us understand uh, physical processes, in uh, even in laboratories. I have to remind you that um, helium was first discovered in the solar atmosphere, and um, we wouldn't know so much about neutrinos these days if uh, we didn't have a constant stream of those particles reaching us from the sun. Right, yeah. But our understanding of the sun has changed dramatically over the course of the last 50 or 60 years. Could you talk us through our changing understanding of the sun and, and how we've got from where we were to where we are today? Our understanding of the sun has changed tremendously over the past 40 years or so. Back in the 50s and 60s, we thought that the solar atmosphere was a plane parallel, very simple, uh, vertically stratified, with well-defined uh, layers that we call the photosphere, the chromosphere, and the corona. In more recent years, uh, we can see that it's a lot more complex than that. The chromospheric plasma does mix with coronal plasma. We have a lot more dynamic processes taking place over extremely short spatial and temporal scales. And this has only been uh, possible with the advent of high-resolution instruments that have been put in space and on the ground. Fantastic. So one such small-scale feature on the sun that we've, we've only been talking about relatively recently are things called magnetic bright points, which were a feature of your talk that we've just heard. So what, what is a magnetic bright point and, and what can we learn from them? Well, magnetic bright points are uh, very small structures. I would say the smallest magnetic structures that we can resolve on the sun's photosphere. They have a diameter of about 100 kilometers, which is basically the current limit of our telescopes. And they are formed by the collection of magnetic flux uh, that rises from the solar interior to the surface. They are bright because they have lower density than the surrounding medium. So when we look at their location, we can see deeper into the sun where the temperature is higher. Okay. So by probing those lower levels of the sun where the temperature is hotter... What, what can we learn about it and what's, what's special about that? Well, by studying magnetic bright points, we can understand how the small scale field, which is in these tiny structures, uh, merges together to form bigger structures like plage and sunspot regions. By studying those magnetic bright points, uh, we can also study the dynamics of uh, between the plasma and the magnetic fields on special scales and on an unprecedented level by astrophysical standards. Okay, and that'll be really helpful for um, for things such as the theory, where it's very difficult to marry those small scale plasma processes on the you know the very kinetic scale up to the big large scale MHD processes. Absolutely, and we are getting a lot of guidance from theoretical models fit to allow us to design our observing sequences to search for the predictions of the models. Likewise, the observations, new findings from the observations are fed to the theorists so that they can modify their uh, uh, models to fit better the observational parameters. Okay, fantastic. So we've got the observation and the theory speaking to each other in real time and everything's moving. Uh, the observation and theory really have to go uh, hand in hand, mm -hmm. uh, not just in solar physics, but in all areas of astrophysics and physics in general, if we are to advance the field. Sure, definitely. 
So one thing, I mean, I'm studying magnetic reconnection in the corona, and it's really important that we can get good observations of the magnetic field on the sun. But of course, you can't you can't see a magnetic field with the naked eye. So how is it that we can measure the magnetic field on the sun just by looking at it? Well, as you said, we cannot see a magnetic field by naked eye, but we can see the signature of the magnetic field on the light of, of dedicated spectral lines. The Zeeman effect tells us that under certain conditions, certain atoms can have a splitting in their upper level, and the amount of splitting on the upper level of those atoms depends on the strength of the magnetic field. The splitting in the upper level of those atoms is then reflected into how broad that it, the line that we observed is, so by measuring those lines, measuring how broad the line profile is, we can go back and determine the strength of the magnetic field that created it. Right. So um, if we've got a spectral line that we know is at a certain frequency, we can look and see how broad that is and then determine the strength of the magnetic field that broadened it in that, that region. So that's Absolutely. That is that's exactly the, the, the method that uh, is used. That's, that's really cool. So why are some magnetic bright points so much brighter than others? You, you mentioned in your talk that you, you noticed two distinct populations of them. Do, do you have any idea about what causes some of them to be perhaps more stable at uh, higher luminosities compared to the others? Or? Our sort of preliminary results show that there are two groups of bright points, one group which has very strong magnetic field, another group which, which has much weaker fields, and it's not exactly clear to us why this is happening. We speculate that bright points may evolve between the two groups, but the time it takes them to move from one group to the other is so short that cannot be captured with the time resolution of our existing instruments. Okay. So we have to push for higher temporal resolution to understand exactly what creates this bimodal population. Right. So that's something we'll be looking at future generations of, of telescope. So. Uh, this is something that we hope to be looking very soon and uh, um, uh, resolve basically the, the, the nature of that distribution, yes. Cool. So something with a fairly exciting name that you talked about was the, the element bombs, which we can see on the sun, um, which to me sounded like a sort of very slow solar flare process, but happening much lower in the sun's atmosphere. What, what is an element bomb and, and, and why do they happen? Well, element bombs are um, were identified back uh, almost 100 years ago by Ellerman with some of the very first uh, solar observations, and their their observational signature is an increase in the brightness in the outer wings of the hydrogen alpha line. They are uh, similar to very small flares to to some extent, but because they occur in the photosphere, uh, where solar flares uh, don't have a strong signature in H-alpha, that's why they are distinct. They are also distinct from solar flares because they are a lot less impulsive. Um, they rise to the peak and their decline back to their quiet state is a lot more gradual. Solar flares are a lot more impulsive. What creates Ellerman bombs? Uh, the most uh, likely process that generates those Ellerman bombs is the annihilation of small-scale magnetic flux that okay. is encountered in the photosphere. Right. So um, potentially a similar mechanism to a solar flare then in the sense that it's flux coming together and reconnecting into a new magnetic configuration. The physical processes are likely to be very similar, yes. Okay. Um, the observed parameters, the radiative parameters that we see may be different, but the physics we think is going to be very similar, yes. Right. And they, um, they result in the surrounding temperature and magnetic field profiles changing quite dramatically for the photosphere. 
Before the Ehlerman bomb, we see a slow buildup in the localized magnetic field. And as that magnetic field uh, diminishes and annihilates, we see uh, the Ehlerman bomb diminish as well. So uh, it is strongly dependent on the buildup of that magnetic energy mm. and, it's, uh, it, and it disappears. Right. So um, could you say that this is perhaps another example of our understanding of the sun becoming more dynamic and there's there's more processes happening on on different scales in places we don't expect is this is this new surprising information well it's it's another example that processes on the solar atmosphere occur on a, on very small special scales mm-hmm. um, so every time we push the limits of our current instruments to the smaller structures we tend to find new and exciting phenomena Okay, so that must mean you're very excited about the DKIST telescope, which, uh, when is that coming online? Uh, the Daniel K. Nui Solar Telescope will uh, have first light in 2019. Okay. It's a facility which is led by the National Science Foundation in the US, and its aim is to study solar magnetism down to, to special scales of a few kilometers. Okay, fantastic. Um, and it's a ground-based telescope. You were in the talk. You were very passionate about ground-based observations for the for solar physics, but I was always taught that optical ground-based imaging was plagued with issues. What? How far has the field come, and and why are these uh, images so much better than some of the ones we've been getting from space? Ground-based observations in the visible have uh, uh, always had the uh, problems with atmospheric scene. Mm-hmm. So the the reason why the field has advanced so much in recent years is due to adaptive optics. To be a little bit more specific, the the the, the scene, atmospheric scene, poses such a limitation that um, the uh, special resolution, a four meter solar telescope, is not different to that of a ten centimeter telescope. And the only way to get a four meter telescope to achieve its full full potential and observe the smallest structure that it is allowed by the diffraction limit of the aperture is by applying adaptive optics. And adaptive optics have revolutionized the field of of solar physics and nighttime astronomy in the past 10 years. That's why uh, there is now the big push to develop the large aperture uh, solar telescopes. So when we can move to this larger aperture telescope, uh, how much better is that going to be than what we've seen previously? Well, the structure that we're going to see on the surface of the sun will be at least four times smaller. We're going to see, we're going to have a resolution which is going to be at least four times better than our current telescopes. So again, this will allow us to study the magnetic field over, uh, even in, in smaller scales. And more importantly, it will allow us for the first time to measure the very weak polarization signal from the corona of the sun and, and determine directly the magnetic field strength in the outer corona. Okay, and is that something that's not been achievable from ground-based observations before? Or? Measurements of the coronal magnetic field from, from the ground or space have been very difficult because uh, they require extremely high signal-to-noise and very accurate polarization optics. With the Dickies telescope, uh, we have a much bigger aperture, 4-meter aperture, so the signal-to-noise will increase significantly, and the polarization optics are going to be much more accurate to allow us to disentangle that very weak polarization signal and therefore measure directly the magnetic field of coronal loops. Okay, fantastic. So uh, you were describing the technical challenges that are going to come from producing this much data with Dickies because it's it's looking at so many different channels and uh, it's at such a high resolution. Why does it 
need such a demanding specification and, and how are you working to meet that? Vic is going to be producing data at a rate of about 2.5 gigabytes per second for each of the cameras that we are going to supply. And we're going to be supplying uh, nine cameras. If you take into account that it's going to be observing for five to six hours a day, the data that are going to be produced on a daily basis are going to be of the order of hundreds of terabytes. The need for such a a large data rate, the need for such a high cadence, which resolves the high data rate, is because we are going to be applying image reconstruction techniques that will allow us to take out the scene effects and get down to the diffraction limit resolution. So adaptive optics combined with image reconstruction techniques will achieve the required resolution. Image reconstruction will be using approximately 30 frames every second to produce one frame at the resolution that can be achieved by the 4-meter aperture. Mm-hmm. And some of those results that you have simulated that, you can be, that you'll be able to achieve with this telescope were, were quite striking. And it, even some of the pictures that have already been taken with ground-based observatories um, were very impressive. Where can people go to, to see some of those images, like that one that you showed us of the, the photosphere? Those images can be seen in the website of some of the current facilities, and these are the Swedish Solar Telescope, the New Solar Telescope uh, at Big Bear, uh, the Swedish Solar Telescope is on the island of La Palma, uh, the Dan Solar Telescope, which is in the uh, in New Mexico. So by visiting their websites, you can get some of this spectacular imaging. Brilliant. Yeah, I would highly recommend that um, people do that because I, I was very impressed with it. Having you know, I've seen pictures from the Solar Dynamics Observatory and things that are online at the minute and uh, of the corona and it, beautiful images particularly the coronal rain uh, loop that's on, on YouTube. But th- this stuff is is really sharp and really crisp, and it's parts of the sun that you don't usually get to see, so that's really interesting. I, I think I would like to emphasize at this point that um, ground-based observations work very closely with planners of the of the space missions sure. because it's really only with the synergy between the synergy between ground-based observations and space-borne observations that will allow us to disentangle the process that's taking place on the sun. Mm-hmm. Sure. So where will these new resolutions and this new capability, where will this push our understanding? Which areas of the sun are we most interested in and what do we expect to to find? Well, we're going to be, with DICIST, we will be able to resolve the fine structure in the umbra of sunspots because there are currently predictions that there is a lot of fine structure that we are not seeing. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you are well aware, the sunspots lead to flares and eruptive phenomena. With TIKIS, we will also be able to study direct flare phenomena and and see how the flare energy builds up in flares and how does that energy is released. And the the processes that lead to the energy release in flares is very important because they affect our terrestrial environment. Sure. So one thing that you talked about that could be really exciting is uh, the potential use to learn about exoplanets from our current models of the sun. So by studying the subject that's really close to us. It's, you know, it's our best example of a star that we have. How can we turn the knowledge we gain here into knowledge about the rest of the universe? Given that the sun is a star, I think it's very important that we understand our own star, which is in our own backyard, before we go and understand other stars. Of course, the sun is only one star, so we don't want to be carried away and assume that every other star behaves like the sun. Sure. However, we have to remember that more than 90% of the stars in the night sky have activity and convective envelopes behave like the sun. So understanding solar granulation, the very small radio velocity signal that we get from the smaller structure on the photosphere of the sun, we can understand how granulation in other stars behave, and it's that very weak granulation signal 
that acts as astrophysical noise on top of the signal that they're trying to detect when we try to find out Earth-like exoplanets. So understanding how that noise, so to speak, from the sun, the granulation noise, behaves, and applying that to other stars, we can then subtract that noise and find the net radio velocity signal that an exoplanet may be inducing on a solar-like star. Brilliant stuff. Mihalis Mathiutakis, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for that, Max. And here is an additional message. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And uh, I was going to uh, talk about the uh, thing that uh, I brought to odds and ends first, which is a press release which uh, went out the day before we were recording this about a Russian satellite called Radio Astron. It basically functions like a single individual radio antenna, and it can work with other radio antennas uh, on Earth to function like a radio interferometer. And because it's so far away from the other radio telescopes on Earth, it can function like a really, really wide interferometer and therefore make really, really uh, high-resolution images of other things in space. And Radio Astron, working with the other radio uh, antennae, has uh, looked at the nearby quasar 3C273 and has produced uh, some of the highest resolution images ever of this quasar. It's uh, produced an image which, um, where the scales in which it can see are uh, around 2 to 3 light months in diameter which is uh, equivalent to uh, about 14,000 astronomical units. Uh, this is actually the uh, roughly the inner diameter 
of the Oort cloud for a solar system. So it's actually getting down to very small scales. And what the uh, telescope has found is that the quasar is actually much, much brighter than what anybody had actually expected. The press release actually refers to this as brightness temperature, and just to explain what brightness temperature means uh, really briefly, uh, it's a uh, form of measuring brightness that's used by radio astronomers, uh, which is uh, dependent on uh, this principle called black body radiation, where it's like if you make something warmer, like if you turn your oven on, uh, your black uh, heating elements will turn red as they get warmer. And then uh, as you make things even hotter, they'll turn blue. But it's uh, not only does the color change when things get hotter, but also like the overall brightness of the things get changed. And so when radio astronomers uh, look at things, they often like to express uh, the brightnesses of the things that they're looking at in terms of this brightness temperature. So this press release actually talks about this thing being hot. Uh, in fact, incredibly hot, much hotter uh, than uh, what anybody had actually expected. So uh, it was already expected that things like uh, 3C273 and other quasars should have brightness temperatures that get up to uh, 100 billion degrees uh, Celsius or Kelvin. Uh, take your choice. It doesn't really matter at that point. Um, but in the case of 3C273, it actually gets up to 10 trillion uh, degrees or even much further than that. And uh, there are a lot of uh, complicated processes in terms of producing the radiation, which people expect from the region around the black hole, uh, which involve things like synchrotron emission and then inverse Comptonization, which is this process where photons hang electrons actually uh, shift in frequency. And then there are also relativistic effects sort of uh, folded into all of that as well. People didn't expect stuff to get quite as hot as what they found with uh, 3C273 using Radioastron. And so this is a major revelation uh, in terms of uh, uh, just how extreme uh, active galactic nuclei actually get. It's going to force people to reevaluate what they uh, think they know about active galactic nuclei and uh, go back to uh, try to produce better models of just how these things can produce so much radiation. So just so I understand this correctly about the telescope itself, is it that there is one element of it in space and it, that the rest of the elements are, are ground-based? Well, the radioastron itself uh, refers to the satellite bit that's in space, and so it worked with several other telescopes that are on the ground. So the interferometer is... Is it composed of a space telescope plus several a load of ground-based ground telescopes? telescopes yes. So, what kind of baseline does this thing have? It's a baseline of more than a hundred thousand miles. That is really cool. So, I'd always heard like ideas about of having like space-based interferometers before, mm. but I never realised anyone had actually done it. Yeah. <laughs> when you said this, I was kind of like, I thought this was still 10 years away. <laughs> Clearly, I need to learn more about radio astronomy, but it's really impressive. One of the challenges with this thing, and uh, I heard this about the uh, very long baseline array that the mm -hmm. NRAO put together, where they uh, basically spread out radio antennas across not only the continental United States, but also in the U.S. Virgin Islands and Hawaii as well. 
if you produce an interferometer with really, really long baselines to see really small things, you're kind of limited to really small things that are also really bright. Mm. This would be easy to do if we were working in optical light where stars are really bright, really small things. But in the radio, there aren't that many things that are really bright and really small. Mm. So it's telescopes like this are only designed to look at a handful of objects anyway. So it hasn't been like something that's been pushed as much as, for example, the next infrared telescope or the next x-ray telescope where it can look at just about everything. This is a an observatory which is very specialized in terms of what it's going to be able to do in the first place. And there's also a technical challenges as well, as you mentioned. So you've talked about the angular resolution of this object in terms of the angular size that can be seen, and you, you talked about that in terms of light months, right? Yeah, so, in terms of actual angle on the sky, it's yeah. 26 micro arc seconds. Wow. And just to remind people, the moon is 30 arc minutes. Wow, that's incredible. But like you say, it's only useful for a handful of things. Yeah, because you need to look at things that are really, really bright and really, really compact. Otherwise, you can't see the emission. Something something I didn't quite understand at the beginning was that you said um, they've now got a really good measurement of the surface, of the brightness temperature of this object. It's much hotter than expected. What I didn't quite understand was, shouldn't they have seen this object with previous telescopes? Even if they couldn't get quite the same resolution, they should still be able to have a reasonable measurement of the brightness temperature. So a lot of radio objects in the sky have already been detected by multiple radio surveys, which either uh, cover part of the sky or all of the sky. And uh, those telescopes will have detected... 3C273, but these surveys are done at low resolution. And the important thing here to remember is that uh, this is actually a measure of brightness, not a measure of temperature. And so what you're doing is you're taking the light, you're actually smearing it out for a larger area because a lot of these telescopes which are doing these surveys uh, just don't have the really high spatial resolution. And so something like 3C273 probably actually looked uh, less bright than it actually did because all of the emission was spread out in these other surveys. What uh, Radio Astron, uh, working with the ground-based telescopes, discovered is that it's actually much, much more compact and also much more brighter than had been anticipated. Cool, that makes sense. Okay. So, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about ExoMars, um, or the ExoBiology on Mars mission, which is a joint European Space Agency and Russian Federal Space Agency mission to Mars. Um, It's composed of two launches. So, um, the first one was launched in um, mid-March, and the second one will be in 2018. Now, it's been um, a bit of a rough going for this project. I think it was originally proposed in the early 2000s, um, and it was originally meant to launch in 2011, and then its funding got pulled, and there's been you know a whole host of problems. Um, so it's actually getting to the launch stage is quite exciting in itself. So the launch that took place in mid-March um, was the launch of an orbiter 
and a lander that are going to be sent to the surface of Mars and they should arrive in October time. Now, this whole mission is about looking at conditions for life on Mars and also preparing for possible future manned missions for Mars. So I mentioned it consists of an orbiter and a lander. So the lander is called, um, I'm not going to say this correctly, but Schiaparelli. Um, and then there is the trace gas orbiter as well. Now, the lander isn't actually there to do that much science, bizarrely enough, um, because once it gets to the surface, it's only going to operate for about two to eight days before its batteries run out. Um, and that's Martian days as well. So it's really not very much time. And the main aim of the lander is to d test the technology used for landing the actual lander itself. Um, so all kinds of things to, you know, protect it um, when it enters the atmosphere, things for measuring its height and the parachutes and all those things. They're also deliberately trying to land it in a dust storm which I thought sounded pretty ambitious. So they've picked a region on the planet which has lots of dust storms and the time of year it's going to land, there should be some dust storms. And the idea is that they can measure the properties of the dust in itself, um, which will again help prepare for future missions. It's also got um, an instrument which measures electric fields because it's thought that electric fields can actually um, help create these dust storms. Something called like um, uh, dust levitation. Um, which sounded pretty incredible to me. Um, so their equipment is going to look for that as well. Um, one of my favourite things about this is that the instrument that does this is called DREAMS, um, the Dust Characterization Risk Assessment and Environment Analyzer on the Martian surface, which has got to top one of my lists of favourite astronomy acronyms. It's desperately contrived, isn't it? But it's great. <laughs> I don't think that's that desperately contrived. But there are significantly worse. I've seen yeah. much worse, yes. Um, so that's the lander. But as I said, that's only going to last for two to eight days. So it's quite a short-term thing. Um, whereas the orbiter is kind of the really the long-term project. And it's meant to be there until about 2020. And um, so it will slow down into a circular orbit around Mars. And it's mainly going to analyse the content of the atmosphere. And they're looking for evidence for methane because Earth-based telescopes have, have found evidence for methane on Mars. But what's a bit odd about it is that methane should only last kind of in the hundreds of years. So that suggests there might be some ongoing process which is producing it. Um, or we just happen to be here at a very fortunate time. Um, and the typical processes on Earth which create methane are usually either biological or geological, and either of those things on Mars are pretty interesting. So um, this orbiter is going to like, kind of track the methane levels, but also it's going to search the surface for things like volcanoes, like possible evidence from in the past, and search for water ice deposits as well, which is pretty cool. Um, and as I said, there's also going to be a launch in 2018, so they're going to send a, an actual rover um, in 2018, and this orbiter will also be in communication with that. So it did thankfully launch okay. There was a minor explosion uh, <laughs> it launched, but it's all all right. Um, so um, it turns out that shortly after it launched, there was um, a part of the kind of rocket bit which was meant to detach safely and it exploded, or it looks like it exploded um, not long after it launching. But it's all right because it doesn't look like any of the shrapnel hit the actual probe. So it should be fine, um, but that was spotted from a telescope in Brazil. So that's quite exciting, and it should get to Mars in October, so we should hear a bit more about it then. But it's a pretty cool project, and it's good to see that it's actually gotten to the stage after taking so long to get there. Yeah. Really. Um, um, some some missions have gotten delayed much, much well, worse. Yeah, but I mean, so I think in 2011, oh no, sorry, 2012, because they, um, they originally partly funded by NASA and they lost all of their funding from NASA. So to come back from that, I think is pretty 
tremendous and there is still um they're a bit unsure about money for the 2018 launch so it's possible that might get delayed by another two years but i still think yeah that's pretty impressive to go from you know losing a significant amount of your money to a Mm. launch in four years it sounds like that sequester back in 2012 impacted the uh mission Mm -hmm. um the thing where it's like well, two parties in Congress. The budget and, standoff. Yeah, the yeah. budget standoff where the two parties in Congress and uh, President in the United States couldn't come to any type of agreement on the budget whatsoever. So they just sort of agreed to this thing where it's like there would be tax increases and budget cuts. And uh, mm. science and astronomy got badly hit by that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, fingers crossed for the 2018 launch anyway. Yeah. Um, and, it, yeah, it looks quite exciting, I think. That's really so. cool. I mean, no matter what the source of that methane is, it's, it's just intrinsically interesting. Either it's got an active yeah. lithosphere or it's got an active biosphere. Yeah, either Both one of, of those, those is very are cool. are really, really cool. Mm-hmm. The active lithosphere or, or the geological activity would be kind of surprising because mm. it's uh, Mars does look kind of dead and relatively stable yeah and you can kind of tell that by the fact there are craters on uh the martian surface as well as like geological features such as like the riverbeds which look like they've been there for extremely long times there are craters it's roughly half the size of the earth so it's had it should have cooled by now um but i think i don't know is there still a trace of a magnetic field in mars Oh, I think a very, very, very weak one because you couldn't use a compass to navigate on Mars, but mm. there is a weak one, and it might, yeah, it might even change. Actually, I'm yeah. not sure. Well, speaking of the solar system, one of our former broadcasters was in the news um, this month. So Christina Smith, who's now a postdoc at York University, um, was actually featured in the Daily Mail. <laughs> which was a bit of a surprise to me. So she's been working on um, the Huygens mission, which sent a lander to Titan, and she was featuring the Daily Mail for finding evidence for ground fog on Titan, or she was part of a team that did. I'm told she didn't actually give an interview to the Daily Mail, but they scraped it from Discovery News. But something a bit exciting to <laughs> hear for our team. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so I've only got a very short thing that I wanted to draw people's attention to. A few ex jodcasters have got together to produce a new podcast. Um, all of those Jodcasters were at Jodcast Live. Um, these are Mark Perver, Jen Gupta, uh, Stuart Lowe, David Alt, the two founders, and Megan Argo, who's still here. And they've got together to produce a new podcast called Seldom Serious, as in the star Sirius. Um, their first episode went out um, just towards the end of March, uh, where they talked about, I think they talked about ExoMars, they talked about the number of planets that have have been in the solar system and how that's changed over the years and how there's all this controversy over what we should call Pluto. Um, it's when, a really when they say show. a number of planets have changed, is this based on what we're classifying? Based on the classification of, of what we call a planet versus what we don't call a planet, rather than the number of bodies in the solar system has changed over time. As far as I know, that hasn't happened. Um, but it's a really good show. It's about half an hour long, and it's basically like sitting and listening to a really interesting conversation going on to, in the pub at, at the table next to you. Um, so it's well worth half an hour of your time, um, well worth a subscription to. So head over to seldomserious.net, um, or you can also follow them at seldomserious on Twitter. And now going to someone who hasn't left us to start his own podcast, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The night sky for April 2016. Well, as darkness falls, that lovely region of the sky with Orion and 
Gemini, and above that, Auriga with the yellow star Capella is setting towards the west. Looking to the south is that very nice constellation of Leo with its bright star Regulus, Alpha Leonis. And that's, of course, highlighted by a bright object, which is in fact Jupiter, which is lying in the southern part of Leo. There's not much in the sky above Leo until you actually get to the plough, with the two stars, Merak and then Dubhe, pointing towards Polaris. If you look at the handle of the plough, the middle star of the three that make up the handle, in fact, is a very nice, interesting triple star system, really. You have Mizar, the brightest, and then away to it is Alcor. And if you look with a, a telescope, you actually see that Mizar is a double star. And in the same field of view is another fa faint reddish star as well. It's a nice thing to look at. And then dropping down below the handle of the plough, you come to the bright star Arcturus, which is at the bottom end of the constellation Butis. And maybe a little bit later on, you'll see over in the northeast the very bright star Vega rising. And that's perhaps one of the first of the three stars that make up what's called the Summer Triangle. So gradually over the summer, these will become more apparent. What about the planets? Jupiter reached opposition on March the 8th, last month. This is still an excellent month to observe it, high in the southern sky during the evening. Its brightness is, of course, falling slightly from magnitude minus 2.4 to minus 2.3. That's not a lot. While its angular size drops from 44 to 41 arc seconds. As I've just said, Jupiter is spending the month in southeastern Leo, moving slowly westwards in what's called retrograde motion, which actually is due to the fact that the Earth is sort of coming around on the inside track. With a small telescope, one should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot. And in fact, if you look on the night sky page, just put night sky Jodrell Bank into a search engine, you'll find I have a list of the times when the great red spot is actually facing the Earth. And you may also see up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Now Saturn is also moving towards its opposition. It rises at about 2.00 UT at the beginning of April, a little bit earlier each night, so it's about 23.00 UT by the end of April. It's shining at magnitude plus 0.3 and brightens to about plus 0.2 during the month. It's lying in the southern part of the constellation Ophiuchus, some 5.5 degrees up and to the left of Antares in Scorpius. As the Earth nears it, as we move round towards it, its diameter, the angular diameter, increases from 17.4 to 18.1 arc seconds during the month. It's seen due south in the early hours of the morning at an elevation of 19 degrees. Very nicely, the beautiful ring system has now opened out to about 26 degrees, virtually as open as they ever become. And they measure 40 arc seconds across. It's obviously best observed near the meridian, that's due south, during the hour before dawn. If only it were a little higher in the ecliptic, its elevation never gets above 19 degrees so the atmosphere will hinder our view of what is a most beautiful planet. And sadly, 
as seen from our northern climes, on each successive apparition in the next few years, it will get lower and lower in the sky. So perhaps now is the time to emigrate to the southern hemisphere. And in fact, last autumn, I saw in daylight Saturn up at an elevation of about 60 degrees. That was very nice. Well, Mercury, don't often see it very well, but this month Mercury has its best apparition of the year for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, shining in the west-northwest during the evening twilight. As April begins, it is low above the horizon, but shining brightly at magnitude minus 1.5. It reaches greatest elongation, brackets east, on the 18th of April. So then it's higher in the sky. Um, and its altitude at sunset will be 19 degrees. But it will still be at an elevation of 10 degrees some 45 minutes after sunset. That's perhaps the best time to look for it. On that day, the 18th of April, its disk will be about 7.5 arc seconds across and 38% will be illuminated. So you might have a chance to see that with a small telescope. It then during the latter part of the month, fades rapidly down to magnitude plus 1.5 and will disappear into the sun's glare about the 28th of the month. Now, it's gradually moving towards inferior conjunction, which happens on the 9th of May, when we will observe a transit of Mercury across the face of the sun. That's one of two major highlights for next month. Mars is also moving towards opposition. At the beginning of April, it rises around midnight UT, and it's a little earlier every night, of course, so by about 10 p.m. UT by month's end. It starts the month in Scorpius, moves slowly into Ophiuchus on the 4th, and as it begins its retrograde motion westwards on April the 18th, moves back towards Scorpius, which it re-enters on the 1st of May. Its brightness increases dramatically this month, increasing from magnitude minus 0.6 to minus 1.4. And of course, at the same time, its angular size is increasing too, from 12 to 16 arc seconds. And that's the largest it has appeared for some 10 years. And in fact, as it reaches opposition on the 22nd of May, it will then subtend about 18.6 arc seconds. So now is really the time to start seriously observing Mars in the early hours of the morning, when details such as the polar caps and dark regions such as Certis Major should be easily visible in a small telescope on nights of good seeing. Venus has dominated the morning sky, the pre-dawn sky, for some time now, but this month it rises less than half an hour before sunrise at the start of the month. You can see it, given a good low eastern horizon, but it will be unobservable after about the ninth or so. However, as I'll explain a bit later, it will be worth attempting to observe it on the morning of the 6th, when it's occulted by a thin crescent moon. So finally, what about the highlights of this month? Well, of course, it's still a great month to view Jupiter. As I said, it lies in the southern part of Leo, but still reaches an elevation of 48 degrees when crossing the meridian during the evening. An interesting observation is that the great red spot appears to be diminishing in size. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned some 40,000 kilometres across, but now appears to be only about 16,500 kilometres across, less than half the size. 
We always used to say that you could fit three Earths across it, but now it's not much more than one. The shrinking rate appears to be accelerating, and observations indicate that it is now reducing in size by about 580 miles per year. I wonder, will it eventually disappear? On April the 3rd, in the evening, about 2200 BST this time, if one observes Jupiter, you'll see Ganymede emerging from its shadow. So during the early evening, Jupiter will appear to have just three Galilean satellites, Io and Callisto to its right and Europa to its left. Ganymede is, of course, there, but hiding in Jupiter's shadow, and it will emerge just after 10 o'clock BST that evening. That might be a very nice thing to look for. I mentioned that on April the 6th, before dawn, the moon will occult Venus. This is a very difficult observation. It probably requires a telescope on a tracking mount, so, in fact, the moon can be tracked because the occultation happens essentially during early daylight. So I'm not going to say more details about it, but if you're interested, do have a look on the night sky page. You'll only, in fact, see the occultation from probably somewhere like south of Manchester in the UK. In Manchester, at least according to Solarium, Venus will just graze along the top northern surface of the moon. And further north, you'll not see an occultation before. But somewhere to the south of the UK, you have a good chance. In fact, it'll take about 60 seconds to disappear then and about 70 seconds to emerge. April the 8th, 45 minutes after sunset, you have a chance to see Mercury and a thin crescent moon. Looking west after sunset and as darkness falls, Mercury will be seen just 60 degrees to the right and slightly up from a very thin waxing crescent moon. On the 16th, the waxing moon nears Jupiter, closing into a separation of just over 4 degrees at about 2200 UT in the evening. Nothing very exciting, but on the 21st of April, the moon is at apogee. And that means when it's at its furthest distance from the Earth. So on the following day, at full moon, it will not appear as big or as bright as when the moon is at perigree, its closest approach to the Earth. When that happens, we say we have a supermoon or a megamoon. Perhaps surprisingly, its angular diameter at apogee is 12% smaller than at perigee. And should a solar eclipse near occur near apogee, the moon's full shadow may not reach the Earth, giving rise to what's called an annular eclipse. And I put a picture I made with just two of my full moon images on the night sky page, just showing you that 12% difference is actually quite a lot. Finally, I usually try and give you something on the moon to look for, and on the 16th of April and the 29th, the two great lunar craters Tycho and Copernicus are near the Terminator, so a best scene. Tycho's towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Luther Highlands. It's a relatively young crater, about 108 million years old. It's thought to have been formed by the impact of one of the remnants of an asteroid that gave rise to the asteroid now named Bapticina. In fact, another asteroid, originating from the same breakup, 
may well have caused the Chicxulub crater 65 million years ago. Tycho has a diameter of 85 kilometres and is nearly 5 kilometres deep. At full moon, and I do give an image of that too on the night sky page, the rays of material that were ejected when it was formed can be seen arcing across the surface. Now Copernicus, up in the northern part of the moon, is about 800 million years old. It lies in the eastern Oceanus Procolarum, just beyond the end of the Apennine mountain chain. It's 93 kilometres wide and nearly 4 kilometres deep, and is a classic terraced crater. Both, of course, can be seen with binoculars. So I hope you enjoy the month. There are some nice things to look for. We do have to stay up a little bit later to see them, though. Good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere, here's Heratina Mogusanu with the night sky where you are. This campfire story is dedicated to Stuart at Astronomy Blog. Special thanks go to the amazing Rian Sheehan, Peter Detterline, Alan Gilmer, and Toa Notone Witare Iwaka. Welcome to the month of April. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu and tonight I'm your storyteller from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I love the Milky Way. The Milky Way is the most spectacular feature of the Southern Hemisphere, but to say that it's such an understatement. The Milky Way is so striking here and I believe that in the absence of a polar star, which I found hard to find in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, people could even orient themselves by the Milky Way. And why not? We can easily see the Milky Way from Wellington, which according to Lonely Planet is the coolest little capital in the world. But it's still a city, which means that it does come with light pollution and from most of the cities of the world, we are lucky to see just the brightest stars. Yet I have noticed when walking home at night from the observatory from my street I can still see the galaxy. I call it my city of stars. There are times when I look up and gaze straight at the center of it. This time of the year, just after sunset, I can see from the center to the edge, from Scorpius to Taurus, in one glorious panorama. So in April, my beautiful city of stars is stretching through the night sky from northwest to southeast. Allow your gaze to wander along this celestial tapestry and you will see the brightest stars. Let's start from west, lining up onto the celestial river R. Very low on the horizon, Aldebaran in Taurus, at 0.86 magnitude. Magnitude is the logarithmic measurement of the brightness of the stars. Logarithmic means that each step of one magnitude changes in brightness by a factor of about 2.512. A magnitude 1 star is exactly a hundred times brighter than a magnitude 6 star, as the difference of five magnitude steps corresponds to 2.512 to the power of 5 or 100. Next come Castor and Pollux in Gemini at 1.93 magnitude and 1.14. Then Betelgeuse in Orion at 0.42 magnitude. Procyon in the Small Dog 0.34. And Sirius in the Big Dog 
at minus 146. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky. By convention, the brighter the star, the smaller the number, and so some stars and objects have negative magnitudes like Sirius, or like the International Space Station, which can reach up to minus 6 magnitude, or, to have an idea, the full moon, which has minus 13. The Big Dog constellation finally looks the right way up and it's also heading to the western horizon. If you found it, then turn your gaze left. Nearby comes Canopus at minus 0.72, the second brightest star in the sky. Canopus is not in the white band of the Milky Way. Standing tall, Canopus is high in the sky as it likes to be at this time of the year after sunset. Canopus is a circumpolar star from Wellington which means that it goes around in circles in 23 hours and 56 minutes, riding the celestial ferris wheel of the southern skies, a giant wheel that never stops, day after day, in a sidereal time cycle, as long as the Earth is turning. Clockwise goes the ferris wheel in the southern hemisphere. There is a name for that region of the sky that the astronomers use, we call it the Southern Circumpolar Region. All stars within that region of the sky will never set below the horizon, nor will they ever rise from beneath, but will seem to silently turn clockwise throughout the night. Besides Canopus, there are other stars like the gondolas of the Big Wheel, but not each and every gondola has a bright star in sight. If Canopus is on the top of the big wheel, then just imagine the diameter of the wheel is from Canopus to the horizon. Looking clockwise from Canopus in the 4 o'clock position on the wheel is the lone star Achenar. Achenar marks the end of the grand river Eridanus, the river asterism that flows all the way from Orion to the southern world. At 0.4 magnitude, it shines bright in a region that seems devoid of other stars. Lower down, a peacock, Pavo, takes a ride on the wheel. Its main star, which carries the mundane name of Alpha Pavonis, which literally means the brightest star in Pavo, it's in the 7 o'clock position on the giant turning wheel, almost as if it's just hanging on a side. Following the imaginary curve of the wheel, two very bright stars show up closer to the 10 o'clock position. Firstly, it's the third brightest star in the sky and our closest neighbor, Alpha Centauri, and then Beta Centauri. They point up at the Southern Cross, which is even higher than them in the sky at this time of the year. And one of my favorites, the hypergiant Eta Carina, it's somewhere in between Canopus and the Southern Cross. All these stars make the imaginary big wheel. If you imagine connecting the Southern Cross and Achenar, halfway through you will find the hub of the wheel. That is marked by the South Celestial Pole. The North and South Celestial Poles are the two imaginary points in the sky where the Earth's axis of rotation, indefinitely extended, intersects the celestial sphere. 
Most modern earthbound telescopes are firstly installed so that they orient on the north-south axis. We call it polar alignment and such mounts are called equatorial. From Wellington, the South Celestial Pole, it's located at an altitude of 41 degrees above the horizon. This coincides with the latitude of Wellington. As we move across the Earth at different latitudes, the height in the sky of the North and South Celestial Poles changes to such extremes that they would appear permanently directly overhead to an observer at the Earth's North Pole and South Pole respectively and would seem to lay on the horizon for someone at the equator. I love imagining them both every time I have the chance to have a stopover in Singapore, a place located one degree from Earth's equator. As the Earth spins on its axis, the two celestial poles remain fixed in the sky and all other points appear to rotate around them, completing one circuit per day that is per sidereal day. Sidereal, it's time measured by the stars, which is four minutes shorter than time measured by the position of the sun. I have my own special and personal relation with both celestial poles because I always felt like a navigator across the hemispheres. My own version of Axis Mundi goes through the north and the south celestial pole, also known as the cosmic axis world axis, world pillar, center of the world, world tree, in certain beliefs, axis mundi, is the connection between heaven and earth. The famous philosopher Mircea Eliade, who also wrote the history of religions, thought that every microcosm, every inhabited region has a center, that is to say, a place that is sacred above all. From the center, one may still venture in any of the four cardinal directions, make discoveries and establish new centers as new realms become known and settled. It is more common than a mountain or an elevated place is chosen as the axis mundi, the portal between the heavens and the earth, so you might find more often references to that. For instance, Mount Kunlun in China, Mount Zion, for the ancient Hebrews, the Black Hills for the Sioux, Uluru for the Pichant Chachara people in Central Australia, they are all a different version of Axis Mundi. In the ancient Mesopotamia, the cultures of Sumer and Babylon made their own artificial mountains or ziggurats on the flat river plain. These supported staircase leading to temples at the top and many times these temples held astronomical observatories as well. Because the Axis Mundi is an idea that unites a number of concrete images, there are multiple spots as the center of the world and you can have your own Axis Mundi too and put it anywhere you like. Back to my celestial ferris wheel, the sky looks almost devoid of stars anywhere inside it, with two exceptions. Let's split it into two with a diametral line that links the Alpha and Gamma Cruci stars of the Southern Cross to Lonely Achenar. On the same side as the pointers of the Southern Cross, you will find the small Magellanic Cloud, beautiful bright galaxy that looks to the untrained eye like I was, like a Cyrus cloud hanging at 200,000 light years in space. On the other side of the semicircle, another galaxy, 
The large Magellanic cloud compensates its loneliness by its size, 150,000 light years away. I always remember which one is the small and which one is the large cloud by thinking that the smaller cloud of Magellan plus the two pointers on one side balances, at least visually does, the large Magellanic cloud on the other. So, these so-called clouds that neighbor our galactic presence are visually two-thirds away from the Southern Cross and one-third from Achenar. There is nothing else too bright within the big wheel, maybe because the wheel is inhabited by this giant spider, the Tarantula Nebula, that has its nest inside the large Magellanic cloud. You can see its beautiful wisps through a telescope, although it is very faint. Tarantula Nebula is a star-forming region also known as Thirty Dorados, and according to NASA, is one of the largest star-forming regions located close to the Milky Way. About 2,400 massive stars in the center of 30 Dorados produce intense radiation and powerful winds as they blow off material into space. The large Magellanic Cloud, enormous on a human scale, is in fact less than one-tenth the mass of our home galaxy. It spans just 14,000 light years compared to 100,000 light years for the Milky Way, and it is classified as a irregular dwarf galaxy. The astronomers from the European Southern Observatory believe that its irregularity, combined with its prominent central bar of stars, suggests to astronomers that tidal interactions with the Milky Way and fellow local group galaxy, the small Magellanic Cloud, could have distorted its shape from a classic barred spiral into its modern, more chaotic form. I could keep watching the South Celestial Circle stars turning around all night long, for real, but we have... More stars to visit tonight, and so I jump off the big wheel at Zenith where Canopus is watching, and I go back onto the Milky Way. I'm preparing to slide down towards the eastern horizon. I bump into the false cross, then almost fall into the enormous gravitational field of the famous hypergiant star Eta Carina that attracts me with its silent beauty and the memory of my most magical starry night, one late night at the Carter Observatory as I looked at it through our 41 centimeters polar achievements and so the tiny hourglass or homunculus of its outer shells of blasted solar matter. But there is another pole much stronger that drags me away from Eta Carina and falling towards our own Milky Way center that rises magnificently on the eastern horizon. I'm not there yet though. I have to pass through the stars of the Southern Cross completely engulfed into the Milky Way. Alpha Crucis, Beta Crucis, Gamma Crucis and Delta Crucis and its famous fifth star Eta Crucis. What's with these names? The brightest stars in a constellation are named using the letters of the Greek alphabet followed by the Latin genitive of that constellation. Crux, the Southern Cross, is no stranger to the Northern Hemisphere and it was entirely visible as far north as Britain in the 4th millennium BC. 
The Greeks could see it too, but since then the procession of the equinoxes, the wobble of Earth, its gyroscopic dance on the orbit, has changed the skies a lot, so that now Crooks is only visible in the Northern Hemisphere from as far south as 25 degrees latitude north. Florida Keys, Puerto Rico, the island of the Caribbean, as well as Hawaii are its northern limit of visibility. Near the Southern Cross, there is a dark patch of dust that masks the light that comes from the stars behind it, and that is known as the Cossack. Inside the Cossack, the Jewel Box is one of my favorite sites that I visit over and over with the telescope. Lower down on the path of the Milky Way, the two pointers look now as if they're hanging from the Southern Cross. First comes Beta Centauri, the genitive for Centaurus, the name of the constellation. Then the famous Alpha Centauri. For Maori, they are also known in a different time of the year as the rope of an anchor. And I can't stop but thinking that this is the end of my rope of stars. If I let go now, I will fall into the center of the galaxy, which is slowly and majestically climbing on the eastern horizon. Here in Aotearoa, the Maori have three names for the same asterisms or grouping of stars at different times of the year. What we know as Scorpius is now called Manaya Kitarangi, the guardian of the skies, the messenger between the earthly world of mortals and the domain of the spirits. Manaya also resembles to a seahorse, and its symbol is used as a guardian against evil. Often you will see Maori people wearing a green stone in Maori named Ponamu, Manaya as a taonga, a necklace. Lower on the horizon, at a magnitude of 0.95, red giant Antares shines as the brightest star in Scorpius. Right next to it is rival Ares by its Greek name, or Mars, as we all know it better, is challenging the giant's red hue with his own red glimmer. This is how Antares got its name, as being the rival of Ares, and Ares, the rival of Mars. As the Milky Way splits the sky into two sectors through the northeastern horizon runs the ecliptic, a lower arch, the plane of our solar system bearing the zodiacal constellations. They intersect the Milky Way right on the horizon. First to set on the western horizon is Taurus, and of it just Aldebaran is left gleaming faintly as it passes beyond the edge of the world. The arch of the ecliptic climbs through Gemini, holder of the two bright stars Castor and Pollux, and higher up, Cancer, is almost invisible to the untrained eye, a good peripheral vision training object. Leo with the royal star Regulus is now host to the bright planet Jupiter, then comes Virgo with his bright star Spica, then Libra with Zuben el Genubi, and Zuben el Shamali, the severed claws of Scorpius, repurposed into a balance for justice by the Roman Emperor Julius Caesar. Finally, the arch curves down on where Scorpius with red Antares is carrying red Mars. They appear around 10 p.m., followed by Saturn about 40 minutes later. Mars will brighten steadily through the month as we catch up on it. Its distance shrinks from 118 million kilometers away at the beginning of April to 88 million kilometers away at the end of the month. It remains a small object in a telescope, 
according to our very own Alan Gilmer, who received a lot of fan mail throughout his life about the subject, as probably did all of us. In the mid-month, a telescope needs to magnify 130 times to make Mars look as big as the Moon does to the naked eye. Saturn rises after 10.20pm New Zealand daytime at the beginning of April, around 7.20 New Zealand Standard Time by month's end. Saturn is straight below Antares. If you have never seen Saturn through a telescope, the hunting season is about to open. A small telescope shows Saturn as a oval, the rings and planet blended. Larger telescopes separate the planet and rings and may show Saturn's moons looking like faint stars close to the planet. The best comment that I hear over and over from people looking through the telescope at Saturn for the first time after the ubiquitous wow, it's how much Saturn looks like Saturn. Titan, one of the biggest moons in the solar system, orbits about four rings diameters from the planet. Saturn is 1,400 million kilometers away mid-month. Mercury might be seen setting in the bright twilight mid-month as well. It looks like a lone bright star on the northwest skyline. This almost concludes our Jotcast for April 2016, but before I leave you with the peace of the night sky, I just wanted to quickly show you only two deep sky objects visually close to Jupiter, currently the luminary of the night sky. Jupiter is in Leo. Neighboring Leo are Sextans and Hydra. Sextans is a minor equatorial constellation, a designation that made me smile. This constellation was actually invented by the famous stellar cartographer Johannes Hevelius to celebrate its sextant, a beloved instrument he used to map the sky. A copy of his famous map adorns the ceiling of our beautiful library inside Space Place at Carter Observatory. Unknown to Hevelius inside the celestial sextant, there is a bright galaxy, NGC 3115, also known as the Spindle Galaxy. According to NASA, this field lenticular galaxy several times bigger than the Milky Way holds the nearest billion solar mass black hole to Earth, whereas our supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy called Sagittarius A has a mass only equal to about 4 million suns. The other object that I want to show you is inside the largest of the 88 constellations in the sky, Hydra, and close to the current position of Jupiter. The remains of a dying star form a planetary nebula called NGC 3242 and nicknamed the Ghost of Jupiter. A planetary nebula is a slowly dying star, a star that is not too big, not too small, anything say in the range of 0.8 to 8 solar masses. Planetary nebulae are beautifully colored and it is believed that they may play a crucial role in the chemical evolution of the Milky Way, blowing out their chemical elements into the interstellar medium. Now, these are the same chemical elements that make our bones, construct our skin and basically are both the building bricks of who we are and keep us alive. And all these chemical elements we have on Earth have all been through the hearts of stars. 
I get many comments a lot of times from people telling me how small and daunted, dwarfed and insignificant they feel when they look at the stars and that they deliberately avoid um, looking up. It took me many years to get my head around this, but when I look up to the sky, I know for sure that I'm made of stardust and that makes me glow every day. From Space Place at Carter Observatory here in the Southern Hemisphere, I wish you a dark sky so that we can always see the stars and remember that we are made of the same stardust as they are. Thanks for that, Haritina. And now on to the feedback. And we've got plenty of that after Jodcast Live, which is really exciting. So our first one um, is from Eleanor Horner, who's age 10, um, who I believe was actually at Jodcast Live. And it says, to the Jodcasters, thank you very much for the book and the badge you gave me. I really like the badge and I have already started reading the book. It's really interesting. I really enjoyed coming to watch you doing the Jodcast and thank you for answering my question. I enjoy coming to Jodwell Bank to learn about astronomy. Yours sincerely, Eleanor. That's lovely. It is. Um, we've also got a few postcards as well. So I should say that was an actual letter, which I found really exciting. Came with an envelope. We don't get that very often. Um, so onto our postcards, we had a short postcard from Ben Tubridge, who's actually a PhD student at um, George Bank um, from Cancun, I believe from a cosmology conference there. Um, and there's a lovely photo of the beach in Mexico. And I'm quite jealous. I'm going to have to make my way to cosmology on the beach at some point. Um, so we've got a couple more um, we've got one from um, Ellen um, who sent us a postcard of Jodrell of the Lovell Telescope itself it says hello Jodcasters I visited the cafe at Jodrell Bank saw the postcard and thought of you so here you go a postcard of your own telescope I'll try and send a more interesting one next time keep up the great work Ellen so yeah that's a pretty decent cafe as well I've had those chips they're really good um, the chips are amazing. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think this postcard is really interesting because it shows the site before the Square Kilometre Array headquarters building was built. Um, it would be in the foreground of this picture um, if it were here. Um, but what's left over is a, a Ordnance Survey trick point on the right, which is still there, um, but is completely blocked now by the SKA building. Um, so I, I really like this picture because it shows what the site used to look like. Yeah, that's a really good point. And because there's so much development going on at the site mm. now as well, it's nice to see how it's changed over time. So that brings me on to our final postcard, which has a um, lovely picture. Well, I say a picture of Europa. It's not. It's kind of um, one of those travel adverts for Europa. I, I don't know if you've seen them. Definitely worth having a look online to see if you can find them. If not, because some of them are fantastic. And I will be finding one for my wall in my we, flat. We, we actually discussed art like this, actually, for like uh, exoplanet type stuff, too. Uh. And it's even even like uh, part of the Jodcast cover art from one of the older That's really uh, cool. episodes. I'm going to have to go back through the archives and find that because I love this kind of image. Um, it's quite retro. Um, so this one says, Dear Jodcast Live, sorry I can't be with you. Having a wonderful time fishing on Europa. Long time fan, Bill Keck too. Thanks, Bill Keck too. We had a couple of posts on Facebook. John Edge says, well done, great show. Paul Davison says, just finished listening to the episode. A very nice tonic after a difficult day. I particularly enjoyed the interview, what, another one, with Chris Lintot and the message from Tim O'Brien. And, of course, the usual piece from Haritina Mogusanu, who has a wonderful way with words. And, finally, the end 10 minutes of outtakes. Keep up the good work. You make my car journey so much more fun and educational. And 
And finally, Jonathan Shin says, Spectacular start to the March 2016 Jodcast with so many guests worth waiting for. And we've had quite a lot of feedback from Twitter as well, mainly related to Jodcast Live. Starting with a message from ex-Jodcaster and founder Stuart Lowe, who wrote, I like Milky Way Kiwi, that's Haratina's um, Twitter handle, I like Milky Way Kiwi's Southern Hemisphere Night Sky section of the Jodcast. It's like sitting around a campfire. Um, he also then wrote, uh, My fa- first email to David Alt was on the se- 17th of October 2005. We had a logo idea by then, and that's him referring to um, when he first came up with the idea for the show. Um, he then screenshotted an image of an email he first sent to Jodrell Bank students asking for help with these newfangled podcast thingies. <laughs> and the email reads, Hello, can you spare an hour or two a month? Would you like to get involved with a Jodrell Bank radio show and become an international celebrity? If so, you may be interested in helping with the Jodrell Bank podcast. The podcast already has a name, the Jodcast, and a logo, but it needs some people to produce astronomy-related content. There are many ways to be involved, presenting, reporting, interviewing, writing, editing, music, foreign correspondence, etc. There should be something for everyone. So uh, thanks for sending us those, Stuart. Um, we've also had a message from Sergeant Wilco, who writes, I can highly recommend the best astronomy podcast available. Sorry if I spoil this one, I was in the audience. Referring there to Jodcast Live, thanks for that. And finally, we have a couple of tweets from Bill Keck, who also sent us the uh, Europa postcard. The first one is, best Jodcast intro ever, um, referring to um, our intro to Jodcast Live, which had several celebrities uh, introducing the Jodcast for us, including Dara O'Brien, Carol Vorderman, and the Astronomer Royal. Um, He then writes, I'm on a silent, packed commuter train with someone giggling like an idiot. Me. (laughs) Hashtag Jodcast bloopers referring to the short outtakes reel we placed at the end of that episode. So thanks for that, Bill. I'm glad we're making you laugh on a train. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Professor Mahalis, Matthew Dacus for the interview. The editors were Adam Avison, James Bamber, George Bendo, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The producer was George Bendo. Until next time, Jod on. on.